Hello and welcome back to Analytics at ServiceNow with your host Alex Sanginov. This is Season 2 and we are excited to cover the ins and outs of a day in the life of analytics roles and their contribution in creating value to fuel the company's growth. In this episode, we're joined by Mark Maloon and Michael Alton, senior data scientists at ServiceNow. Both come from unexpected career backgrounds before finding peace with data. Let's find out how peaceful it really is. Hello, gentlemen. Welcome to the show. Mark, Michael, uh, how are you guys doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Doing, doing great. Welcome again. It's so great to have you both. As I can only imagine the amount of questions and enthusiasm that's are out there in the space around data science, artificial uh, intelligence, machine learning. Now, just to start with the basic questions first, what is data science? Well, Alex, um, there's a lot of debate as to what exactly data science is in the community. But the way I like to think about it is in terms of really what is science for a business um, application. And that is, we're trying to use the scientific method to answer questions that are of interest to the, to the business. Um, obviously, data science is where we use data heavily in, in making that. But there's still the same process of uh, observations and hypotheses and what's a little bit, you know, and then making a prediction as to what will happen and so forth. So it's really doing science that will have a business outcome with the main ingredient being data. That's how I define it. So uh, I really like that. Can we simplify that? Like explain like I'm five, right? Uh, which is a popular, you know, Reddit subreddit uh, for those who are listening and familiar with uh, the social media platform, if you will. Right. If we were to explain this to a five-year-old, right, how would we explain this data science? Well, I would just say solving problems, solving difficult problems using data. I like that. What does a typical day look like uh, being a data scientist? Well, for me, it varies a lot on where I am. So it may be doing exploratory data analysis. It may be meeting with subject matter experts or business stakeholders to get a better idea of what they want and potentially showing them what I have to date. Obviously, modeling is an important part of that. Um, so I guess for me, a typical day is where I really sit and look at what needs to be done today and then what needs to be done for the rest of the week and organizing my um, work uh, accordingly. And exploration is a large part of that. Um, and then being in uh, communication with the, with the business. I can only imagine the amount of data that you go through on a daily basis. Uh, and Michael, how about you? How is your di uh, day different? Um, well, my day is pretty much the exact same thing as, as Mark's. Um, we probably spend a lot more time talking to stakeholders, though. That that tends to be a lot heavier workload than actually doing analytics and building models. Um, so, yeah, about half your time is just trying to explain to people um, what you've done and how you can use what you've what you've made, and then the other half of it is is the other things that are actually interesting, which is you know looking at the data and trying to figure out a story from it. 
Yeah, listening to Michael's answer just reminded me that in learning to become a data scientist, there's a lot of emphasis on the algorithms and practicing data science. It's it's what Michael just said, a lot of time working with the business, um, showing them what we've done. And so there is a bit of a, uh, a learning curve for people who know machine learning just out of school um, as to what they're, gonna, they're really going to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. So if I'm understanding this cor correctly so far, Mark, you know, I think, you know, you said it beautifully, right? You know, problem solving at the end of the day, but knowing which problem to solve, right, takes, you know, a good amount of time, sounds like. And the prediction, assuming, you know, you have all the data, then, you know, as Michael uh, mentioned as well, you know, the, the interesting part, you know, comes in at that point, right? You have, you know, clear, you know, pain point or customer uh, challenge that we're about to solve. And you have the data now, you know, they let the interesting part, you know, come in to tell the story. Am I on track? I think so. You know, a lot of times the business has a vague idea of what they want. And then in the course of exploring the data and you thinking about it a little bit more, you come back to them and say, I know you said this, what do you think about this? And so there is this iterative back and forth uh, where you actually right. help guide their, um, their, what they really want. But of course, but of course they know the business and the, um, so they've got a good idea too. So this whole back and forth interplay uh, is a major part of, uh, of any data scientist role. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot of iteration, right? Um, and that is the, one of the beautiful things about uh, data or data and analytics product building is is that you know it's a fast prototyping you can go through a lot of iterations in just you know one week right um <clears throat> Yeah, there's a famous process model called CRISP-DM. It's an acronym. Um, I, I CR is cross industry. I don't know. Remember, remember what the rest of it is. But DM is data mining. But it, it's it shows the various um, uh, steps of a data science uh, effort. And there's lots of loops too, uh, which lead to that uh, iteration that you just spoke about. Okay. Okay. We'll bring up Chris, but I, I think it's too general to actually be a process, and it it it's certainly not a linear flow. You you end up going back and forth in a lot of different things. Um, but again, you know, talking to to stakeholders really is the the biggest part of it because a lot of times you're just educating people about what actually is possible. Um, there's a lot of times that we've had groups come to us with really interesting ideas. Um, you know, for things like next best action, you know, can we predict what a customer is going to do next? Or, you know, what, what course a particular person should take next? What, what sessions should they sit in on for, for knowledge? And the conversation from there always goes, okay, do we have data on that historically? No. Why do you need that? <laughs> right. Um, so, so yeah, there, there, there is some education of, of stakeholders that has to be done as well. Right. So how do you tackle those situations, Michael? Assuming there is no data, uh, how do you go about that? Well, when, there's, when there really is no data, there's no, no data science project there. Um, okay. Data is really the foundation of, of what we do. Um, it, a lot of times what you're trying to do is to see if there's some other type of data or some adjacent problem that can be solved um, that maybe we do have more information on. Right. So it would essentially become the correlation, but not necessarily causation. 
type of prediction or recommendation or whatnot. Is that? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I'd put it in terms of correlation or causation. It, it's really solving, you know, a parallel problem or um, in, in other cases, you know, what we can do is we can set up a, a process that will dynamically learn over time so that um, even if you don't have the data right now to build, say, a recommender model that you wanted to build, um, you recommend something as a cold start. And then as you collect data, your model will get smarter over time. And presumably you'll, you'll gain enough information that it's going to actually give you good recommendations eventually. Ah, that's, that is smart. That is very intriguing. Uh, well, in the light of solving problems, uh, what steps and how do you go about solving problems? Well, I think a lot of that for me is what we just spoke about. You know, there's an initial kickoff meeting with the business stakeholder. Then I reach out to a subject matter expert, find out what data is available, maybe have a, a data engineer help package it for me. I do a little bit of exploration. You know, at that point, I start to get a real feel for um, what the data is, whether it's good quality or not. But then I also have lots of questions. Wait a minute, I noticed this trend in the data. And then I go back to the subject matter expert and say, is, does this, you know, is there a reason for this? I wouldn't have expected this. And so a lot of it up front is really getting an idea of um, what the data is actually saying. And then, like you said before, there's an iterative process where you try to create some sort of prototype model sooner rather than later show them the, uh, the results um, and then say, is this on the right track? Um, and then go from there. So that's, so this, yeah, well, how do you go about solving the problem? It, it's a lot of iteration, um, you know, and there's sort of iterations upon iterations. There's the initial interplay between understanding the data and actually the, asking the subject matter experts. Then there's an iteration with talking with the business stakeholder. Then there's you creating the model and showing them and so forth. And so, I, you know, it just seems like a lot of uh, looping iterations. Got it. Just to double click though, in terms of, you know, iteration, how do you select the right algorithm or the right AI model, right? Or the uh, machine learning model? It's kind of an odd question because it, it's usually fairly apparent what what type of model or what type of approach needs to be used for a particular problem. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of an odd question. It's usually fairly evident from the beginning. Okay. Well, I think, uh, you know, I think uh, one of our standard techniques that we reach for a lot is uh, XG boost, extreme, extreme gradient boosting. And so, um, you know, I'm, there are certainly people who are working on modeling techniques other than that. But I think for a lot of regression and uh, binary classification, we've had such good results with that, that I think that is kind of a first step. And like Michael said, it's, it's usually apparent whether that's going to work or not, but that tends to be one that we reach for um, a lot just because you know, we've had a lot of success with it. So keeping in mind someone who is uh, relatively newer or earlier in their career, right, where they don't necessarily have uh, the industry practices and you know, the results from these uh, selecting the right and or knowing which uh, model to pick from, how would you uh, what would you advise them essentially, uh, right? Which, which model and algorithm to pick for which type of problem? If it's prediction, right? Which model would you 
select versus recommendation versus anomaly detection or whatnot? Well, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Well, I mean, I, you, you kind of answered it, at least for, you know, classification in, in a lot of cases. We, we actually used to have a tool called Data Robot. And essentially, it was a, an auto ML tool that you would, you know, give it data and it would try a variety of different models of various types. And it would do, you know, random forest and cart trees, XGBoost models, uh, TensorFlow models, a, a wide variety of things, actually. And, and you know, okay. usually when it comes to classification, it, it was somewhat disappointing because it's usually some flavor of XGBoost that's mm -hmm. always, you know, top performing. Um, but what you really need to consider is, is not always performance. What you actually need to consider is, you know, what are you using this model for? If, if the goal of the model is simply for prediction and you want the best accuracy possible, yes, that, that data robot approach of taking everything at the kitchen sink and throwing it at it and seeing what works best, that's probably a good approach. Um, but, it, but most of the time when we build models, we also have to explain them to people or at least be able to describe, you know, what's going on in the model, what are the insights that are generated from the model. And a lot of times that makes certain types of models like XGBoost models kind of non-conducive for that purpose. They're, they're much harder to explain. Um, so, so sometimes even though you might get lower performance, uh, statistically speaking, it might have more business value if you can convince people of what the model's doing and provide meaningful reason code that make them actually take action on the recommendations of the model. I see. So it would be essentially what, uh, what I'm hearing is we would give them enough uh, to be data-driven even though there is still room to improve, right? If we really want it, truly to want it to be data-driven, well, it, it, again, it depends what the the goal of the model is and how it's going to be used. Um, right. So a lot of the models that, that we build are you know, for the sales organization. And when we display something to, to a sales rep and say, you know, this account is at risk or we need to take a particular action for the account and that action is motivated by a machine learning model, they want to know why because they're not going to actually reach out and engage with the customer and take action on it if they don't agree with that recommendation. So it, it, to some extent, you can have a really good statistical model, but if the stakeholder is not gonna buy into it and not gonna use it, it's a useless model. I see. I think along with that, um, which, is, which is a great point, I think it's also helpful for the data scientists to ask themselves, what information, not necessarily data, um, do I have that I can leverage? And so, you know, deep learning is very good if you have very little um, subject matter expertise, which is why it's so good for, uh, you know, image recognition. Um, a lot of the work, a lot of the stuff we do, you know, we have decent ideas, you know, the utilization uh, uh, is, a, is a big driver on whether the account's going to grow or not. We know that, right? Um, you know, other problems, if you have to uh, classify something as a number of uh, N uh, uh, categories and you have some a priori information somehow, well, then there's methods like naive Bayes, which are actually pr pretty good. And 
you know, I think a lot of people do get fixated on just a couple of modeling techniques. A couple of years ago, I was teaching a course for a junior data scientists and was leading them through a whiteboard example. Okay. And, you know, the solution was actually to use naive Bayes. They completely missed that. And when I you know, told them afterwards, look, this is a, a clear indication where why you would use this. Her response was, I thought they only taught us that in school for historical significance. You know, it, the fact that it was used in actually useful just blew her away. Right. But, right. you know, again, for some problems, you know, yeah. um, XG boost may not be the, you know, the best choice. You know, but again, you have to think about what information do I have right now? If you have good a priori information, then... Um, right. You know, so something like naive base might actually be the best choice. Okay. Michael, were you going to say something? Uh, no, no. No, I, I just thought that was funny that she thought naive base was only taught for historical reasons. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, <clears throat> gentlemen, I know you both are well recognized in the industry and experts in the field. Definitely well-respected data scientists here at ServiceNow. Uh, really would like to understand uh, what is unique about data science practices here at ServiceNow compared to the industry and or other companies that you might have worked for? You know, I think we have an interesting approach to collaboration. Um, I've worked in companies where we're all working on a common code base, um, where we're passing scripts around back and forth. Here, each one of us is more or less working on an individual project. However, if I have questions about uh, particular data, I can reach out to Michael and, you know, more often than not, you know, he will just drop what he's doing and, you know, give me some information that's very valuable for my project. And now we're moving into a direction where models are feeding other models. You know, we have right. a big thrust to develop a, a super, um, you know, account growth algorithm. And the inputs from that are, um, you know, minimum viable uh, product, minimum viable value, um, implementation risk, and so on and so forth. And even in one of the, the models that I have, which is a uh, trying to determine which of our accounts are going are at risk of being a downsell, I incorporate a lot of outputs from Michael's models as well. So that whole, um, not only using, not only taking advantage of other people's expertise, but also um, using the products of their models in your model is something I have not done before in another company. And I think we are uh, benefiting tremendously from that. Awesome. Definitely speaks to a hungry and humble culture that we have here. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's also slightly different in the sense that we generate or capture most of the data that we actually use. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not third-party data or, you know, something that a client just emailed to us. Um, and in fact, if, if there's a usage metric that, you know, comes up on a call that someone who's a business stakeholder thinks would be interesting, you know, we can actually go to the team that collects usage data on every single ServiceNow instance and create a definition for that. So right. that, that's something that doesn't typically exist in most places that you get to inform how the data is collected and what data gets collected. You know, Alex, um, back in season one, you had Brian Hoffman, who's the leader of the data science team on, and he shared that one of the reasons he came to work for ServiceNow is just the wealth of data. And yeah. that's, you know, speaking directly to what Michael just said, we don't have to rely on third-party data because we have so much good data and we can get more data. Um, and it's great for, you know, I mean, the last thing you want to be as a data scientist, as a company where there's not enough good data because that, 
it's not your fault, but you know, your models aren't going to work very well. So, um, you know, obviously the sheer amount of data we have um, is, is fantastic. Absolutely. I can definitely sense the uh, enthusiasm for, uh, as you are speaking about, you know, the data and the quality of it, you know, we have here and we're definitely blessed with that. And of course, you know, that is uh, music to every data analyst and data scientist, data engineers ears, right? And now it's, it's not, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's true. We also um, have challenges. <laughs> yeah. There, there's definitely unique challenges to ServiceNow too. Um, and the, the, cha- the unique challenge that, that we constantly encounter is that ServiceNow is still a growing and evolving company. And, you know, anytime you, you build an analytic model, you're essentially relying on this assumption that, the future is going to look like the past, right? So we use relationships that exist in the past to predict what the future is going to look like. But if everything about your business is constantly changing, if the average deal size is constantly changing, if the products themselves are changing and evolving over time, that actually introduces a a whole new problem for analytics. Um, And this is something that we've we've encountered fairly recently. you know, we're, we're expanding our, our customer service product. So what we used to call, you know, our customer service business unit a few years ago is completely different from what the product actually looks like now. It's yeah. completely different from what the product's going to look like in the future. Yeah. And so that has also increased the need for incorporating a lot more human knowledge and, and right. human feedback into a lot of these analytics models because, the historical data is not necessarily the only thing that you want to base your, your projections off of. Yeah, that's a great call out. And um, for those, I, w- I would definitely call you up on future episodes, Michael, as we uh, progress and introduce new products uh, with upcoming you know, product releases or whatnot. And timely, we just you know, had our knowledge event. So for those who, are, who haven't you know, registered or learned about latest and greatest you know, releases, highly encourage everyone to check those those, you know, sessions out. And just out of curiosity, Mark and Michael, uh, do you have any favorite AI ML algorithm that you tend to gravitate towards? Well, for me, it really is XGBoost. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, I think it allows for incorporation of subject matter expertise pretty well through features. Um, it tends to work well with the moderate size data. You know, we, we don't have, I well, at least I don't have uh, situations where there's you know, trillions of records or so forth. So they're more manageable. So XGBoost tends to work pretty well for that. Um, I would say right now, yeah, that that's pretty much my, my go-to choice, unless, as Michael says, it becomes apparent that's not going to work. <laughs> awesome. You know, the other thing is too, um, like Michael was saying, explainability is important. So yes. I don't know how I would explain uh, a uh, support vector machine to a business stakeholder. I, I have no idea, um, but uh, you know, everybody gets the idea of what a decision tree is. So, you know, I just tell them at a very top level, uh, XGBoost is a uh, decision tree on steroids really. And, you know, if they want me to go that. into more detail, I will, but I mean, they get the idea. Okay, well, it's a bunch of decision trees strung together in an intelligent way. And I understand what a decision, decision tree is. Therefore I have some rough idea of what the hell you're talking about. Got it. Michael, how about you? Uh, I don't have a particular favorite algorithm, um, but usually when I, you know, when I start to build models, I, 
I start simple and get complicated. So uh, if there's anything that can be done simply with just a simple linear or logistic regression, you start there, see how it performs and kind of go from there. Um, but the, the toolkit that we actually have is, is very broad. And every once in a while, I, I always like to pull out things that don't get used a lot. So in the most recent project, we actually used uh, quantile regression which is not commonly used outside of, you know, investment and finance industries. So it, it's always interesting to use something different, but I don't have a go-to tool. Usually it's start simple, build more complex. Okay. I like that. Uh, okay. And just out of curiosity uh, around your backgrounds and how did you get into data science? What really attracted you? Well, mine was sort of accidental. My, uh, my degree is actually in applied mathematics. And part of the reason I went into that is because I didn't like data. So I was perfectly happy with partial differential <laughs> equations and integral equations and stuff like that. Okay. But of course, then when I went into the real world, I had to deal with problems that involved data. And so, um, you know, I started learning on the fly things like decision trees, I used uh, Bayesian networks a lot and so forth. And I became really intrigued with the idea of finding something hidden in the data. Um, and that's, you know, the, and then, you know, with that increased focus and uh, coming across more problems that needed to be solved with data because there weren't partial differential equations or maybe you couldn't really code it up on, on a simulation on the computer very well. Um, that's really where I got pulled in and said, okay, this is really the direction I want to go in. So it was really just the whole okay. romantic ideal of uh, discovering <laughs> something in, in the weeds, right? Right. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so I, I've, I've been in analytics before it was called analytics. Um, so I, I started out as, as an economist and in particular as an applied econometrician. And somewhere along the line, people just started calling applied econometrics a part of what now constitutes analytics. Right. Um, and you know, from there, expanded a lot more into some of the things that economists don't keep in their toolkit, like machine learning models uh, and neural networks, things of that nature. That is quite interesting. Two different backgrounds ended, ending up into data science. Quite intriguing. Uh, and. Just out of curiosity, coming back to reality, if you will, uh, what do you enjoy the most about being a data scientist? And alternatively, what do you enjoy the least about being a data scientist? Well, for me, what I just said about finding things in data that are going to make a real difference um, Right. Uh, it's really exciting, you know, especially the fact that it's making a difference. And in this, in our group, of course, we are heavily supporting the sales and marketing team, and now we're moving into others as well. But, you know, I, we can solidly see the benefit that we're having to the cust uh, to the company in terms of dollars and cents. So that is um, something I enjoy tremendously. What do I enjoy the least? I think it is. Um, you really, truly have to have a solid understanding of the particulars of the data, and. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's various um, fields in, or columns in the tables, but you really have to understand what exactly is that measuring? How was it determined to be measured and so forth? And you have to know those real details because if you think that column 
means something else, you may be using it incorrectly. So, and the problem is that, you know, ideally we would have data dictionaries for everything, but as Michael said, we're such a growing company that doesn't really exist. So for me, there's always kind of this thought in the back of my head, is this precisely, uh, is this uh, metric precisely what I think it is? And so that kind of unease, um, uh, you know, it's just something you have to learn to live with and just check as much as you can, check the data as much as can. Yeah, removing assumptions as much as possible from the data in order to be truly data-driven, essentially. So, so what I really like about it is that it, it provides a steady stream of new problems. Um, so you constantly get to think critically and creatively. Right. Um, the, the thing that I don't like about it is that that's not always the case. Um, okay. you, you do spend a lot of time, you know, rebuilding some of the same models over and over again, or just mm -hmm. tracking their performance and making minor adjustments. Um, you know, once, once you put a model into production, it doesn't just, you know, go off and, and exist by itself. You do have to monitor it, make sure it's working properly, track the performance. And some of that can get a little tedious. Yes, and we do have an episode coming up around machine learning operations. Uh, so stay tuned for, the, uh, for those who are listening to this. We'll definitely uncover a lot more what happens behind the scene in keeping those uh, deployed AI and machine learning algorithms into production so they remain relevant. Michael, as you mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, especially in, at fast-paced, you know, growing companies, right, where, or, you know, any industry or within smaller uh, business unit of companies where a lot of change, just because you deployed, your, your job is not done, right? But rather, you know, your job just has begun. So. Very, and very true, yeah. Last, last and two-pronged question. Uh, for those who are aspire, aspired, you know, to be a data scientist and, or relatively, you know, uh, thinking of transitioning into data science, what, what would be your advice in order for them to be successful in this field? Well, Alex, this is actually a question that I thought about a lot. Um, in the last few years, I've actually um, put a lot of time into helping new uh, data scientists land their first jobs. And so, you know, like I said, I was teaching a, a course in person. I had an online course for a while. Uh, I had email newsletters. I wrote blogs and so forth. And I, it, I think there's two main things. And number one is I would recommend that anyone who's starting off, if they're fortunate enough to have um, multiple offers to consider, choose the one where you can learn from a more senior data scientist. Um, don't think about the money, don't think about the paid time off and so forth, because that first um, that first job is going to be learning. And so you want to learn from someone who's been there before. Um, and those are sort of the tips of the trade. Uh, for me, one of, the, one of my mind-blowing ones was when someone showed me that a decision tree, which is normally used for predictive modeling, could also be used for just exploring the data. Now, that's obvious to me in retrospect, but at the time, that was really eye-opening. Oh, I can use this modeling technique for something besides creating a model. Um, so learning, learning, you know, taking a position where you can learn from a, uh, a senior data scientist is important. Number two, I think is, and this gets more important as you go on, is, is having a good working relationship with your data engineer if you have one. And, you know, I just spoke about the concern, um, do you really know what's going on with the data? You know, you can ask them for certain metrics and hopefully they understand what, uh, what precisely you want, or if they don't, they ask you questions. But that sort of communication and trust, I think, is really important to, um, to make sure that 
your models do uh, you know what you think they're going to do so that's those are my two biggest um, recommendations for newcomers awesome very insightful um and my, my advice would be, you know, particularly if you're still someone who's in school, you know, most colleges are going to have a, you know, a, an on-campus consulting club, you know, where people prepare to go into uh, more of a business field that still involves a, a good deal of critical thinking. And that, that would be a good thing to join because the thing that a lot of new data scientists are really unprepared for is engaging with business stakeholders. They, they know math, they know algorithms, they don't know how to explain anything to anyone, and they don't know how to you know, think about the, the real world, what's going on behind the math of the problem they're trying to solve. Um, so that, that's what I would focus on. That's a really great suggestion. Yes, I second that as well. Well, it's been an amazing episode. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I know you're very busy and I'll let you, you know, get back to you know, uncovering a lot more insights. And thank you very much for being on this episode. And, like, and I look forward to having you both in future. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. This was an episode seven of Analytics at ServiceNow, produced by one and only Matt Ackerman. In the next episode, we will cover a day in a life of machine learning operations, aka ML ops, to uncover what happens behind the scenes of supporting AI ML algorithms. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with others. Remember, sharing is caring. Until next time.